Chapter fifty six of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter fifty six. The two sisters no sooner discovered the escape of their prey than, screaming with violent laughter, they began a romping race in its pursuit. Near the entrance into the hall, Juliet was met by Selina, with commands from Mrs. Ireton that she would either present herself immediately to the company, or seek another abode. In the minds of strong sensibility, arrogance rouses resentment more quickly even than injury. A message so gross, an affront so public, required, therefore, no deliberation on the part of Juliet and she was answering that she would make her preparations to depart. When the Miss Crawleys, rushing suddenly upon her, exclaimed with clamorous joy, "'She's caught! She's caught! The Ellis is caught!' and each of them seizing a hand, they dragged her, with merry violence, into the breakfast-room. Her hoidening conductors failed not to excite the attention of the whole assembly, though it fell not, after the first glance, upon themselves. Juliet, to whom the exercise and confusion gave added beauty, and whom no disorder of attire could rob of an air of decency, which, inherent in her nature, was always striking in her demeanour, was no sooner seen than, whether with censure or applause, she monopolised all remark. Mrs. Ireton haughtily bid her approach. Averse, yet unwilling to risk the consequences of a public breach, she slowly advanced. "'I am afraid, ma'am,' said Mrs. Ireton, with a smile of derision, "'I am afraid, ma'am, you have hurried yourself. It is not much above an hour, I believe, since I did myself the honour of sending for you. I have no conception how you have been able to arrive so soon.' Pray, how far do you think it may be from hence to the temple? Ten or twelve yards, I verily believe. You must really be ready to expire. Having constrained herself to hear thus much, Juliet conceived that the duty even of her humble station could require no more. She made, therefore, a slight reverence, with intention to withdraw. But Mrs. Ireton, offended, cried, "'Whither may you be going, ma'am? "'And pray, ma'am, if I may take the liberty to ask such a question, "'who told you to go? "'Was it I? "'Did anybody hear me? "'Did you, Lady Armide, or you, Miss Brinville, "'or only Miss Ellis herself? "'For to be sure I must have done it. "'I take that for granted. "'She would not certainly think of going without leave "'after I have sent for her. "'So I make no doubt but I did it.' though I can't think how it happened, I own. T'was perfectly without knowing it, I confess. In some fit of absence, perhaps in my sleep, for I have slept too, perhaps, without knowing it. Sarcasm so witty, uttered by a lady at an assembly in her own house, could not fail of being received with applause, and Mrs. Ireton, looking around her triumphantly, regarded the disconcerted Juliet as a completely vanquished vassal. In a tone, therefore, that marked the most perfect self-satisfaction. "'Pray, ma'am,' she continued, 
for what might you suppose I did myself the favour to want you? Was it only to take a view of your new costume? "'Tis very careless and picturesque, to be sure, to rove abroad in that agreeable déshabille, just like that, the maiden all forlorn, or rather to speak with mere exactitude like the man all tattered and torn, for tis more properly his costume you adopt than the neat, tidy maidens. The warm-hearted young lady Barbara, all pity and feeling for Juliet, here broke from her quiet and cautious aunt, and, with irrepressible eagerness, exclaimed, "'Mrs. Ireton, t'was Mr. Lauder, your own little naughty nephew, who deranged in that manner the dress of that elegant Miss Ellis.' The Miss Crawleys now, running to the little boy, called out, "'The Lauderd! The Lauderd! Tis the Lauderd has set up the new costume!' Mrs. Ireton, though affecting to laugh, had now done with the subject, and while she was taking a pinch of snuff, to gain time to suggest some other, Sir Jasper Harrington, advancing to Juliet, said, "'Has this young lady no place?' And, gallantly taking her hand, he led her to his own chair, and walked to another part of the room. A civility such as this from Sir Jasper made all the elders of the company stare, and all the younger titter. But the person the most surprised was Mrs. Ireton, who hastily called out, "'Miss Ellis would not do such a thing. Take Sir Jasper's own seat, that has his own particular cushions. She could not do such a thing. I should think not, at least. I may judge ill, but I should think not. A seat prepared for Sir Jasper by my own order.' Miss Ellis can dispense without having an easy-chair and three cushions, I should presume. I may be wrong, to be sure, but I should presume so. Madam, answered Sir Jasper, in days of old I never could bear to sit when I saw a lady standing, and though those days are past, alas, and gone, still I cannot, even to escape a twitch of the gout, see a fair female neglected, without feeling a twitch of another kind, that gives me yet greater pain. "'Your politeness, Sir Jasper,' replied Mrs. Ireton, "'we all know, and if it were for one of my guests. But Miss Ellis can hardly desire, I should suppose, to see you drop down with fatigue, while she is reposing upon your armchair.' Not that I pretend to know her way of thinking, I don't mean that. I don't mean to have it imagined I have the honour of her confidence, but I should rather suppose she could not insist upon turning you out of your own seat, only to give you a paroxysm of the gout. However internally moved, Juliet endured this harangue in total silence. Convinced that where all authority is on the side of the aggressor, Resistance only provokes added triumph. Her looks, therefore, though they showed her to be hurt and offended, evinced a dignified forbearance, superior to the useless reproach and vain retaliation of unequal contention. She rose, nevertheless, from the seat which she had only momentarily, and from surprise occupied, and would have quitted the room but that she saw she should again be publicly called back, and hers was not a situation for braving open enmity. She thankfully, however, accepted a chair which was brought to her by Sir Marmaduke Crowley, 
and placed next to that which had been vacated by the old baronet, who then returned to his own. She now hoped to find some support from his countenance, as his powerful situation in the house, joined to his age, would make his smallest attention prove to her a kind of protection. Her expectation, however, was disappointed. He did not address to her a word, or appear to have ever beheld her before, and his late act of politeness seemed exerted for a perfect stranger from habitual good-breeding. "'And is it you?' thought the pensive Juliet, who but a few minutes since spoke to me with such flattery, such preference, with an even impassioned regard, and shall this so little assembly guide and awe you? There, where I wished upon me your compliments, while here, where a smile would be encouragement, where notice would be charity, you affect to have forgotten, or appear never to have seen me. Ah, mentally continued the silent moralist, if we reflected upon the difficulty of gaining esteem, upon the chances against exciting affection, upon the union of time and circumstance necessary for obtaining sincere regard, we should require courage to withhold, not to follow, the movement of kindness, that, where distress sighs for succour, where helplessness solicits support, gives power to the smallest exertion, to a single word, to a passing smile, to bestow a favour, and to do a service that catch, in the brief space of a little moment, a gratitude that never dies. But while thus to be situated was pain and dejection to Juliet, to see her seated, however unnoticed, in the midst of this society, was almost equally irksome to Mrs. Ireton, who, after some vain internal fretting, ordered the butler to carry about refreshments, consoled with the certainty that he would as little dare present any to Juliet as omit to present them to every one else. The smiles and best humour of Mrs. Ireton now soon returned, for the dependent state of Juliet became more than ever conspicuous, when thus decidedly she was marked as the sole person, in a large assembly, that the servants were permitted, if not instructed, to neglect. Juliet endeavoured to sit tranquil and seem unconcerned, but her fingers were in continual motion, her eyes, meaning to look nowhere, looked everywhere, and Mrs. Ireton had the gratification to perceive that, however she struggled for indifference, she was fully sensible of the awkwardness of her situation. But this was no sooner remarked by Lady Barbara Frankland, than, starting with vivacity from her vainly watchful aunt, she flew to her former instructress, crying, "'Have you taken nothing yet, Miss Ellis? Oh, pray, then, let me choose your eyes for you.' She ran to a sideboard, and selecting the colour most pleasing to her eyes, hastened with it to the blushing, but relieved and grateful Juliet, to whom this benevolent attention seemed instantly to restore the self-command, that pointed indignities, and triumphant derision, were sinking into abashed depression. The sensation produced by this action in Mrs. Ireton was as ungenial as that which it caused to Juliet was consolatory. She could not for a moment endure to see the creature of her power, 
whom she looked upon as destined for the indulgence of her will, and the play of her authority, receive a mark of consideration which, if shown even to herself, would have been accepted as a condescension. Abruptly, therefore, while they were standing together and conversing, she called out, "'Is it possible, Miss Ellis, that you can see the child in such imminent danger and stay there amusing yourself?' Lady Kendover hastily called off her young niece, and Juliet, sighing, crossed over the room to take charge of the little boy, who was sitting astraddle out of one of the windows. "'But I had flattered myself,' cried Sir Marmaduke Crowley, addressing Mrs. Ireton, that we should have a little music. Mrs. Ireton, to whom the talents of Juliet gave pleasure in proportion only to her own repugnance to bringing them into play, had relinquished the projected performance, when she perceived the general interest which was excited by the mere appearance of the intended performer. She declared herself, therefore, so extremely fearful lest some mischief should befall her little nephew, that she could not possibly trust him from the care of Miss Ellis. Half the company now, urged by the thirst of fresh amusement, professed the most passionate fondness for children, and offered their services to watch the dear, sweet little boy, while Miss Ellis should play or sing. But the averseness of Ellis remained uncombated by Mrs. Ireton and, therefore, unconquered. The party was preparing to break up, when Mr. Giles Arb entered the room, to apologize for the non-appearance of Miss Arb, his cousin, who had bid him bring words, he said, that she was taken ill. Ireton, by a few crafty questions, soon drew from him that Miss Arb was only gone to a little private music-meeting at Miss Sycamore's, though, affrighted when he had made the confession, he entreated Mrs. Ireton not to take it amiss, protesting that it was not done in any disrespect to her, but merely because his cousin was more amused at Miss Sycamore's. Mrs. Ireton, extremely piqued, answered that she should be very careful in future not to presume to make an invitation to Miss Arb, but in a total dearth of other entertainment in a famine, or public fast. But the moment he sauntered into another room, to partake of some refreshments, "'That old savage,' she cried, "'is a perfect horror. He is not a single atom of common sense. And if he were not Miss Arb's cousin, one must tell one's butler to show him the door. At least such is my poor opinion. I don't pretend to be a judge, but such is my notion.' "'Oh, I adore him!' cried Miss Crawley. "'He makes me laugh till I'm ready to die. "'He has never a guess what he is about, "'and he never hears a word one says, "'and he stares so when one laughs at him. "'Oh, he's the delightfulest, stupidest, dear little wretch that breathes!' "'Oh, I can't look at him without laughing!' exclaimed Miss Di. "'He's the best thing in nature. "'He's delicious, enchanting, delightful. "'Oh, so dear a fool!' "'He is quite unfit,' said Mrs. Maple, "'for a society, for he says everything that comes uppermost, "'and has not the least idea of what is due to people.' "'Oh, he is the sweetest-tempered, kindest-hearted creature in the world,' "'exclaimed Lady Barbara. 
My aunt's woman has heard, from Miss Arbe's maid, all his history. He has quite ruined himself by serving poor people in distress. He is so generous, he can never pronounce a refusal. But he dresses so meanly, said Miss Brinville, that Mama and I have begged Miss Arbe not to bring him any more to see us. Besides, he tells everything in the world to everybody. Poor Miss Arbe ain't to blame, I assure you, Miss Brinville said Selina, for she dislikes him as much as you do, only when her papa invited him to live with them he was very rich, and it was thought he would leave all his fortune to them. But since then, Miss Arb says, he has grown quite poor, for he has dawdled away almost all his money, in one way or another, letting folks out of prison, setting people up in business, and all that. "'Oh, he's the very king of quizzes,' cried Ireton. He drags me out of the spleen when I feel as if there were no possibility I could yawn on another half-hour. Sir Jasper now, looking with an air of authority towards Ireton, said, It would have been your good star, if not your evil genius, by which you would have been guided, Mr. Ireton, had you been attracted to this old gentleman as to an example, rather than as a butt for your wit. He has very good parts if he knew how to make use of them though he has a simplicity of manners, that induces common observers to conclude him to be nearly an idiot. And, indeed, an absent man seems always in a state of childhood, for, as he is never occupied with what is present, those who think of nothing else naturally take it for granted that what passes is above his comprehension, when perhaps it is only below his attention. But with Mr. Arb, though his temper is incomparably good and placid, Absence is neither want of understanding, nor of powers of observation, for, when once he is awakened to what is passing, by anything that touches his feelings of humanity, or his sense of justice, his seeming stupor turns to energy, his silence is superseded by eloquence, and his gentle diffidence is supplanted by a mental courage, which electrifies with surprise, from its contrast with his general docility and which strikes, and even awes, from an apparent dignity of defying consequence, though in fact it is but the effect of never weighing them. Such, however, as he is, Mr. Ireton with the singularities of his courage, or the oddities of his passiveness, he is a man who is useful to the world from his love of doing good, and happy in himself from the serenity of a temper unruffled by any species of malignity. Ireton ventured not to manifest any resentment at this conclusion, but when, by his embarrassed air, Sir Jasper saw that it was understood, he smiled, and more gaily added, If the fates, the sisters three, and such little branches of learning, had had the benevolence to have fixed my own birth under the influence of the same planet with that of Mr. Giles Arb, how many twitchings, goadings, and worries should I have been spared, from impatience, ambition, envy, discontent, and ill-will! The subject was here dropped, by the re-entrance of Mr. Arb, who, observing Selina, said that he wanted prodigiously to inquire about her poor aunt, whom lately he had met with nowhere, though she used to be everywhere. "'My aunt, sir? she's there said selina pointing to mrs maple 
no no i don't mean that aunt i mean your young aunt that used to be so all alive and clever what's become of her oh i dare say it's my sister you're thinking of ay it's like enough for she's young enough to be sure only you look such a mere child pray how is she now i was very sorry to hear of her cutting her throat a titter which was immediately exalted into a hearty laugh by the miss crawleys was all the answer it was not right to do such a thing he continued very wrong indeed there is no need to be afraid of not dying soon enough for we only come to be gone i pitied her however with all my heart for love is but a dangerous thing it makes older persons than she is go astray one way or another and it was but unkind of mr harleigh not to marry her whether he liked her or not to save her from such a naughty action and pray what is become of that pretty creature that used to teach you all music i have inquired for her at miss matson's often but i always forgot where they said she was gone indeed they make me a little angry about her which probably was the reason that i could never recollect what they told me of her direction angry mr giles repeated mrs ireton with an air of restored complacency what was it then they said of her not that i am very curious to hear it as i presume you will believe you won't imagine it i presume a matter of the first interest to me oh what they said of her was very bad very bad indeed and that's the reason i give no credit to it well well but what was it cried ireton why they told me that she was turned toad-eater universal and irresistible smiles throughout the whole company to the exception of lady barbara and sir jasper now heightened the embarrassment of juliet into pain and distress but the young laudard every moment struggled to escape into the garden through the window and she did not dare quit her post so i asked them what they meant mr giles continued for i never heard of anybody's eating toads though i am assured our neighbours on the other bank are so fond of frogs but they made it out that it only meant a person who would swallow anything bad or good and do whatever he was bid right or wrong for the sake of a little pay this definition by no means brought the assembly back to its gravity but while juliet ashamed and indignant kept her face turned consistently towards the garden ireton called out why don't you speak to your little friend laudard mr giles there he is at the window mr giles now notwithstanding her utmost efforts to avoid his eyes perceived the blushing juliet though doubting his sight he stared and exclaimed good la that lady's very like miss ellis and i protest tis she herself and just as pretty as ever and with the same innocent face that not a soul can either buy or make but god almighty himself he then inquired after her health and welfare with a cordiality that somewhat lessened the pain caused by the general remark that was produced by his address but the relief was at an end upon his adding i wanted to see you prodigiously for i have never forgotten your paying your debt so prettily against your will that morning it fixed you in my good opinion i hope however it is a mistake what they tell me that you are turned what they call toad-eater and have let yourself out at so much a year to say nothing that you think and to do nothing that you like and to beg pardon when you are not at fault 
and to eat all the offals, and to be beat by the little gentleman, and worried by the little dog. I hope all that's mere misapprehension, my dear, for it would be but a very mean way of getting money. The calmness of conscious superiority, with which Juliet heard the beginning of these interrogatories, was converted into extreme confusion, by their termination, from the appearance of justice which the incidents of the morning had given to the attack. "'For now,' continued he, "'that you have paid all your debts, you ought to hold up your head, for when nothing is owing, we are all of us equal, rich and poor.' another man's riches no more making him my superior or benefactor if i do not partake of them than my poverty makes me his servant or dependent if i neither work for nor am benefited by him and i am your witness that you gave every one his due so don't let anybody put you out of your proper place the mortification of juliet at this public exhortation upon a point so delicate was not all that she had to endure. The little dog, who, though incessantly tormented by the little boy, always followed him, kept scratching her gown, to be helped up to the window, that he might play with, or snarl at him, more at his ease. And the boy, making a whip of his pocket-handkerchief, continually attracted, though merely to repulse him, while Juliet, seeking alternately to quiet both, had not a moment's rest. "'Why now, what's all this, my pretty lady?' cried Mr. Giles, perceiving her situation. "'Why do you let those two plagueful things torment you so? Why don't you teach them to be better behaved?' "'Miss Ellis would be vastly obliging, certainly,' with a supercilious brow, said Mrs. Ireton, "'to correct my nephew.' I don't in the least mean to contest her abilities for superintending his chastisement. Not in the least, I assure you. But only as I never heard of my brother's giving her such a carte blanche, and as I don't recollect having given it myself, although I may have done it again, perhaps in my sleep, I should be happy to learn by what authority she would be invested with such powers of discipline. By what authority? That of humanity, ma'am not to spoil a poor ignorant little fellow-creature, nor a poor innocent little beast. "'It would be immensely amiable of her, sir, no doubt,' said Mrs. Ireton, reddening, "'to take charge of the morals of my household. Immensely! I only hope you will be kind enough to instruct the young person, at the same time, how she may hold her situation. That's all. I only hope that.' "'How? Why, by doing her duty?' If she can't hold it by that, tis her duty to quit it. Nobody is born to be trampled upon. "'I hope, too, soon,' said Mrs. Ireton, scoffingly. "'Nobody will be born to be poor.' "'Good, true,' returned he, nodding his head. "'Nobody should be poor. That is very well said. However, if you think her so poor, I can give you the satisfaction to show you your mistake.' She mayn't, indeed, be very rich, poor lady, at bottom, but still. "'No, indeed, I am not,' hastily cried Juliet, frightened at the communication which she saw impending. "'But still,' continued he, "'if she is poor it is not for want of money, nor for want of credit neither, for she has banknotes in abundance in one of her work-bags, and not a penny of them is her own, which shows her to be a person of great honour.' 
Every one now looked awakened to a new curiosity, and Selina exclaimed, "'Oh, la! have you got a fortune, then, my dear Miss Ellis? Oh, I dare say, then, my guess will prove true at last, for I dare say you are a princess in disguise.' "'As far as disguise goes, Selina,' answered Mrs. Maple, "'we never have, I think, disputed, but as to a princess.' "'A princess?' repeated Mrs. Ireton. "'Upon my word, this is an honour I had not imagined. I own my stupidity. I can't but own my stupidity. But I really had never imagined myself so much honoured as to suspect that I had a princess under my roof, who was so complacent as to sing and play and read to me at my pleasure, and to study how to amuse and divert me. I confess I had never suspected it.' I'm quite ashamed of my total want of sagacity, but it had never occurred to me. "'And why not, ma'am?' cried Mr. Giles. "'Why may not a princess be pretty and complacent, and know how to sing and play and read, as well as another lady? She is just as able to learn as you, or any common person. I never heard that a princess took her rank in the place of her faculties. I know no difference, except that, if she does the things with good nature—' You ought to love and honour her the double, in consideration of the great temptation she has to be proud and idle, and to do nothing. We envy all the great when we ought only to revere them if they are good, and to pity them if they are bad, for they have the same infirmities that we have, and nobody that dares put them in mind of them, so that they often go to the grave before they find out they are nothing but poor little men and women like the rest of us. For my part, when I see them worthy and amiable, I look up to them as prodigies, whereas a common person, such as you or I, ma'am, Mrs. Ireton, unable to bear this phrase, endeavoured to turn the attention of the company into another channel, by abruptly calling upon Juliet to go to the pianoforte. Juliet entreated to be excused. Excused? And why, ma'am? What else have you got to do? What are your avocations? I shall really take it as a favour to be informed. Don't tease her, pretty lady, don't tease her, cried Mr. Giles. If she likes to sing, it's very agreeable, but if not, don't make a point of it, for it's not a thing at all essential. Like it? repeated Mrs. Ireton superciliously. We must do nothing, then, but what we like, even when we are in other people's houses even when we exist only through the goodness of some of our superiors. Still we are to do only what we like. I am quite happy in the information, extremely obliged for it indeed. It will enable me, I hope, to rectify the gross error of which I have been guilty, for I really did not know I had a young lady in my house who was to make her will and taste the rule for mine, and as I suppose to have the goodness to direct my servants, as well as to take the trouble to manage me. I knew nothing of all this, I protest. I thought, on the contrary, I had engaged a young person who would never think of taking such a liberty as to give her opinion, but who would do, as she ought, with respect and submission, whatever I should indicate. "'Good la, ma'am,' interrupted Mr. Giles. "'Why, that would be leading the life of a slave, and that, I suppose, is what they meant all this time by a toad-eater.' However, don't look so ashamed, my pretty dear, for a toad-eater-maker is still worse. Fie, fie, 
What can rich people be thinking of to lay out their money in burying their fellow creatures' liberty of speech and thought, and then paying them for a bargain which they ought to despise them for selling? This unexpected retort, turning the smiles of the assembly irresistibly against the lady of the mansion, she hastily renewed her desire that Juliet would sing. "'Sing, ma'am?' cried Mr. Giles. "'Why, a merry Andrew could not do it after being so affronted.' Bless my heart! Tell a human being that she must only move to and fro like a machine, only say what she is bid like a parrot, employ her time calling forth her talents, exact her services, yet not let her make any use of her understanding, neither say what she approves, nor object to what she dislikes. Poor pretty young thing! You are never so much to be pitied in the midst of your worst distresses, as when you are relived upon such terms. Fie upon it, fie! How can great people be so little? The mingled shame and resentment of Mrs. Ireton, at a remonstrance so extraordinary and so unqualified, were with difficulty kept within the bounds of decorum, for though she laughed, and affected to be extremely diverted, her laugh was so sharp and forced that it wounded every ear, and, through the amusement that she pretended to receive, it was obvious that she suffered torture in restraining herself from ordering her servants to turn the orator out of the room. With looks much softened, though in a manner scarcely less fervent, Mr. Giles then, approaching Juliet, repeated, "'Don't be cast down, I say, my pretty lady. You are none the worse for all this. The thing is but equal at last, so we must not always look at the bad side of our fate. State everything fairly.' You have got your talents, your prettiness, and your winning ways, but you want these ladies' wealth. They have got their wealth, their grandeur, and their luxuries, but they want your powers of amusing. You can't well do without one another, so it's best be friends on both sides. Mrs. Ireton, now, dying to give some vent to her spleen, darted the full venom of her angry eyes upon Juliet, and called out, you don't see, I presume, Miss Ellis, what a condition Bijou has put that chair in. T'would be too great a condescension for you, I suppose, just to give it a little pat of the hand to shake off the crumbs. Though it is not your business, I confess. I confess that it is not your business. Perhaps, therefore, I am guilty of an indiscretion in giving you such a hint. Perhaps I had better let Lady Kendover, or Lady Aramede, or Mrs. Brinville, or any of the other ladies, sit upon the dirt and soil their clothes. You may think, perhaps, that it will be for the advantage of the mercer or the linen-draper. You may be considering the good of trade. Or perhaps you may think I may do such sort of menial offices for myself. However generally power may cause timidity, arrogance, in every generous mind, awakens spirit. Juliet, therefore, raising her head, and clearing her countenance, with a modest but firm step, moved silently towards the door. Astonished and offended, "'Permit me, madam,' cried Mrs. Ireton, "'permit me, Miss Ellis, if it is not taking too great a liberty with the person of your vast consequence, permit me to inquire who told you to go.' Juliet turned back her head, and quietly answered, "'A person, madam, who has not the honour to be known to you, myself. 
and then steadily left the room. End of chapter 56 Recording by Roxana Nazari